How many of you have lost something important to you before? Raise your hands. All right, everybody. Everybody loses something at some point. All right, I'm going to give some self-disclosure tonight. Here we go. Once upon a time, I was in love. And I wrote letters to a specific woman. And she wrote letters back. And so I would get these letters and they'd make me feel all giddy inside and get some butterflies. And you know how it is. You probably, you guys are like so like new that you don't write letters anymore. But there's something about writing letters and receiving them. Anyway, because then you open it, you smell the perfume, you, you, you know. I'm just saying. When you love someone very much. Anyway. Well, she moved on and she got married. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story was, once upon a time, I had this love letter and I was in acting classes. Now, when you're in acting classes, you try to get into character. And I had to play a character in love. So I brought along this letter in order to uh, just awaken those emotions within me. So I would go up, look at the letter, open it, read it, and then get into character and do my thing. Someone stole the letter from me, and that was not cool. <laughs> and so I lost it, and the most embarrassing thing was going around asking people for it. I'm like, you, you didn't find a, a letter, did you? You're addressed to me. And I don't know who took it, but I'm still mad at them. Anyway, when you lose something, your attention is held captive by that thing. Those of you that drive, you know when you lose your keys, you can't focus on anything else. You need to find your keys. I've lost my keys before. Sometimes I've left my keys in the car while I was running. And then I, like one time I was washing my car and I left it in the car while I was running and I locked myself out. And then I had to go drive home, get, get a ride home to get my spare key, which is like 40 minutes away and then come back. And for that whole two hours that I'm trying to get my key back, my attention is completely captivated by that lost thing. Um, one time I lost my car, here actually. I just like opened my garage, I was like, where's my car? And for two days I had no idea where my car was. It was here at the church. <laughs> it's really hard to lose my car because my first car was a, a Porsche 9, a 944, not 911. But uh, it was like this weird color blue that was probably pretty ugly, but I pretended like it was really cool. And my friend was just like, well, Bill Higgins, one day, he was just like, is your car at church? It's like, really? My car's at church? It's like, yeah, you didn't know where your car was? I was like, no. <laughs> and I found it. I just like, I don't know. I don't know how I did that. Anyway, in that moment, you get tunnel vision when you lose something, whatever it is, a teddy bear, a key, a car. Today we're going to be learning about a man who, who found something he wasn't looking for. A man named Saul. Let me give you some background before we read the passage. Here's a guy named Saul. He's minding his business. Very good looking man. Very tall. And he was born of the family under his father named Kish. And Kish was a very wise, noble man. Had a very handsome son named Saul. One day, Kish is like, man, where'd my donkeys go? So he sends out his son, Saul. Yo, find my donkeys, son. And Saul's like, yo, yo, pops, I'd be finding those donkeys. So he goes off on a journey. He does his thing. As he's going to find his donkeys, there's nowhere to be found. So he's like, we need, like, divine intervention to find these donkeys. 
So, so his friend who he brings with him is like, oh, I know a prophet. One that sees all. They call him a seer in the olden days. So we could go up to the seer named Samuel and find out exactly where those donkeys are. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So Saul decides to go up with his servant to go talk to Samuel, the seer. And they're like, but we don't have any money. And he's like, well, I have a little bit of money. He's like, all right. So they just figured they're going about their normal business trying to find these lost donkeys. Verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then are you talking to me like this? Paraphrase. He's really confused. Has absolutely no idea what's happening. He's just trying to find his lost donkeys. And then all of a sudden Samuel's like, yes, forget about those donkeys. It is not the whole desire of all of Israel upon you. It's like, donkeys? Is this still about the donkeys? Are we, have we moved on to a different subject here? And then he just skip right ahead to chapter 10. Now it gets really awkward. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, Azelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worried about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the cherubinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you, give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. So he's giving them all this information. He's like, you're going to be the next commander of Israel. You're going to be the next king. And to prove to you that this is going to happen, I'm going to have these signs happen to you. These three random people are going to show up to you, give you bread, give you some other stuff. And so here's the point. Saul lost something and he found something that he wasn't looking for. Which was the call of God. Very often I've seen whenever God is calling someone to do something, you don't expect it. And you can't make God call you either. You can't say, hey, God, you really should call me into ministry. Hey, God, you really should call me to do this. God's like, I know I'm, I'm God, and I kind of do what I want. So when I'm going to call you, I'll call you when I want to call you. It's like kind of going up to your mom and be like, mom, make me dinner. She's like, I'll call you when dinner's ready. At least that's what my mom does. I don't talk to my mom like that, though, by the way. But we're going le- to learn tonight three lessons from the life of Saul that tell us how to respond to God's call. Three lessons from the life of Saul, how to respond to God's call. The first one is to step into something bigger. 
Step into something bigger. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. So that's how you can remember it. Saul was worried about the lost donkeys. A very minuscule subject, is it not? But what in your life is distracting you from the big picture? What's distracting you from the big picture, from God's plans, from his call? Along with the whole acting thing, what I was talking about before, I was actually auditioning to get into Mason Gross Acting School at Rutgers, you know, their BFA program. Auditioning, I was practicing. I wanted to get in. There was only, they only accept 11 students out of usually about 700. It's a really hard program to get into, but I figured if God is calling me, I will get in. So I prayed, I was like, Lord, you, you can make this happen. Against all odds, I can get into this program and I can be an actor and do this thing. What makes auditions really hard, though, I think apart from other subjects, is like you try to apply for a job, you didn't qualify, you didn't have the right specifications, you didn't get in, you know, whatever, you'll try harder. If you're a basketball player, you try to make the team, you just improve later. But with acting, it's especially, it's especially hard because you feel like they're attacking your person. You didn't get the part because they didn't want you. You just didn't fit the mold. You didn't look the certain part or you didn't talk the way that they wanted you. So they feel like they're rejecting you as a person. Now, our worries can distract us from God's big picture. Me worried about, am I going to get into that school? Am I going to get into this program? Am I going to be able to continue on being an actor if I don't get into the program? Those worries, although they seem really big at the time, distract us from God's picture. In in essence, what Samuel is saying is stop getting worked up about these donkeys. You're going to be king. Don't you think that's a little bit more important than donkeys? Maybe God would say to you tonight to stop worrying about the details because God has a bigger picture planned for you. In other words, to step into something bigger that God is calling you to do than just mending and tending to your flock, to your donkeys. I used to have a lot of regret for missed opportunities in my life. There'd be mission trips I missed out on, and all my friends would come back so tightly knit, so excited, like, oh, man, that was the best trip ever. I missed out on, like, the first two Mexico trips, missed out on an England trip, and everyone comes back, has all these inside jokes, and I just feel like I was so left out, and I regretted not going on that trip because who, who knows what God could have done through me if I went. I have a lot of regrets from having friends not know that I'm a Christian, but befriending these people and not ever talking about Jesus. And then I I stopped being friends with them. I'm like, wow, I never mentioned God to that person. Or maybe it's even just missing out on a party I wasn't invited uh, invited out to. A lot of you have graduation parties and you're not invited or you have these different get-togethers and you see them like posting pictures on Facebook and stuff. You kind of feel left out and you have regret because you feel like you're missing out on something that everyone else is a part of. I think social media generates a lot of depression these days because you always see the best of what people have. You know, the best cupcake, the best pizza, the best locations, especially when Hipster Dave's posting all these trips around the world. And everyone else, all the normal people, feels depressed. So we don't get to go to those nice places. But Stephen Furtick once said it this way. He said, we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. I thought that was really clever. We compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. Because you're not seeing the true them. You're seeing the best of what they got. When I was asked to take over junior high, 
by Andy back in the day. It was something I wasn't looking for. I wasn't expecting God's call into ministry. And so when Andy actually asked me, I, I thought he was joking. I laughed at him. And it wasn't until like a week later that I realized he was serious and I actually thought about it. And I wasn't sure at all if I was qualified to do this because all my life I feel like I've been dealing with rejection and not being good enough and I want people to approve of me. And when I was asked to do that, I was just like, well, who would even listen to me? I don't even know that much about the Bible. Like how am I going to teach people the Bible if I don't know that much about the Bible myself? So I had all these, these qualifications I felt like I didn't meet and I wasn't ready for, and I was like, well, why am I called? I don't really know, but there's no stinking way I'm sitting around and missing out on another opportunity. That's what it boiled down to. I was like, I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I've missed out on so many opportunities in my life. I am not about to miss out on this one. Are you missing out on something God has called you into? Are you missing out on something bigger? Maybe God is calling you to, to forget about the little things, forget about the details, step into something bigger that he has for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Some of you are comfortable in your routine and God is asking you, step into something bigger. David was just making a routine delivery. King David, he was making a routine delivery when he found Goliath. Something he wasn't looking for. A possible missed opportunity, but he stepped into something bigger. He didn't know if he was qualified, but he knew God was qualified and God was calling him to do something about it. Daniel didn't know that his daily devotions would lead him to seeing God stop the mouths of lions. He didn't know that by opening his window every single day like he did all the time, by praying to the Lord in the same direction every single day, eventually that same routine would bring him to see God work miraculously in the, in the lion's den. And who knows when the day will come when everything in your life will change. Saul was just a normal guy. I'm just finding these donkeys. That's what I'm called to do. That's what I'm going to do. And one day everything changed. You can't expect it. You can't just assume this is going to be the day that my life changes. But are you preparing yourself for it? When that moment comes, when God calls you, are you going to respond? Are you going to step into something bigger? Or are you going to back out and say, I don't think I'm qualified. I'm, I'm going to take the next train. I'm going to take the next flight. I'm going to take the next opportunity and miss out on what God is calling you to do. Maybe some of you are worried about finances, the future. Maybe some of you are worried about relationships. And because you're so worried about those things, you're not seeing the big picture that God has for you. But God would say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request made known to God and the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when you don't know where to go, sometimes if you have that anxiety, you need to be cleared up. Forget about those donkeys, just... Put it to the side for a second. Let's concentrate on the calling that God has for you to do now and here. And by pushing off that worry, be anxious for nothing, it's not just forgetting about it, but you give it over to God so he can handle it. And that peace of God directs your heart and guards it so that you're able to step into what he's calling you to do. Another quote by Stephen, I'll quote tonight, only, only two quotes by him, but I just love the way he put this is, 
there's a good reason God doesn't feel the need to give you a navigation system, a GPS. It's because he's offering to be your navigational system. God is offering to be your GPS tonight, to be your direction. But with the grandeur of God's calling, we can often feel unequipped for the job. No matter how much we tell ourselves, I I know I'm supposed to step into this. At the same time, you still feel unequipped. I had uh, two very good role models for me. When I thought of someone named Pastor, I thought of Joey Rozek, who is my youth pastor. Loved the Bible. Has so much Bible knowledge, it's not even funny. You guys heard him when he spoke over here. So that's what I thought of when I thought of Pastor. And then secondly, of of someone trying to be a pastor, I thought of another pastor. good friend of mine named Bijan, who also knows way more Bible history than I do, way more church knowledge and all that stuff. He just loves and lives that stuff. You ever have a conversation with him? All he talks about is the Bible. And I figured that those people are, okay, here are the pastors or soon-to-be pastors, and they will look like this. And when I compared myself to those people, I was like, I I don't think I could be that. I don't think, I definitely know I'm not called to be a pastor because the people called to be pastors look like this sort of person. So when we step into something bigger, we often feel like we have to become bigger. And Saul did too. In fact, if you turn the page with me, chapter 10, verse 21, read with me. Something interesting happens to to Saul. He's chosen. All right, I'm anointed. And then they bring him in front of everyone else. Verse 21, when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Mastery was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further. Did he get here yet? Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. He was hiding in everyone's bags and coats, left to the side. Where's Saul? Where's our lead? Is our king here? Did he get here yet? The calling roll call? Oh, he's hiding in the equipment. That's what God says. The all-seeing God, we need God. God, where is he? He's over there, hiding in the pile of stuff. That's not exactly the image I get for the leader of Israel, the first king of Israel. And Saul felt that way as well. You ever just want to run away from your problems? You feel so unequipped, so not ready for this. You just want to run away. Just like, God will solve it somehow. God will use someone else, just not me, not here, not now, later. Maybe when I feel more equipped, maybe when I get more Bible knowledge or when I, I feel ready or when I gain some more courage, at the appropriate time, I can come back to this. But is that what God's calling us to do? No. Second thing, second lesson we can learn from Saul and how to respond to the calling of God. First one is we got to step into something bigger, which means you got to sacrifice your self-image, number two. Sacrifice your self-image. Look at verse five. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a string instrument, tambourine, a flute, and a harp, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into what? The same guy? Same old? Nope. Into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. Such a cool chapter. 
verse 6 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord will come and he will be turned into another man. You see, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does to you when you accept him into your heart. You become a changed person. You're not the same. When you pray the sinner's prayer or you, however you accept Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, your life is going to look really different. It may be different for everyone. It might seem not so different at first and then change later. But you got to be changed in some way. Can you really have the spirit of the living God living inside of you be, and then look at your life before a sinner and then look at your life after when you've accepted Jesus and it looks exactly the same? I don't think so. How can you harness the power of God within you and look the same? John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? Does that mean that like all of a sudden you're born of the Spirit and then you're like, whoa, I don't know what's happening to him. He's like, what's happening to Alan? He, oh, he got saved and we don't know what's happening to him anymore. He's just kind of like there and then he's over here. He's just blowing all over the place. No, that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is you're going to be affected. The wind affects some people with a heavy storm. You're blown away completely. And some people, it's a gentle breeze and you're still moved by it. The question is, are you moved? You can't be half saved, just like you can't be half pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You may not be sure, but it's one or the other. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is it? When the Holy Spirit comes to us, we become changed, foreseeably changed, and you die to yourself. You sacrifice your self-image. Second thing is in verse 7. Second thing to know about sacrificing your self-image is it says, let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. When you're filled with the Spirit, do what the Spirit tells you to do. If you feel compelled to do something about it, then do. Don't just sit around. I've always wanted to, to be led by the Spirit, like the, you know, the still small voice guiding me and just kind of like I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is calling me to do something. And I kind of had it happen this week, except it's not probably what you're thinking about. I always wanted to just text someone in the middle of them flirting with someone else. I just wanted that to happen once, and it happened this week. I texted my friend. I was just like, get him. It just randomly, I just felt like compelled by the Spirit. I don't know if it's the Spirit, but it's... It's, it's just random. I just texted it. And it, at that very moment, my friend was like talking to this girl and then he had his cell phone on the table <laughs> and he was like flirting with her. And then it just pops up. It says, get him. And he's like, <gasps> it just like puts it down. I was like, yes. And he was like, so certain. He was like, so creeped out. He's like, how did you know? And like, spirits leading. I didn't say that. Anyway, what was the point of me saying that? I don't know. I do know. When the Spirit leads you to do something, you do something about it. If you feel led to share Jesus with someone, go and share Jesus. Don't worry about the consequences. Go share Jesus. Some of you might think, I have to pray for that person. I don't know what or why. Maybe God just brings that person to mind throughout the day. You don't know why, but you just feel compelled to pray. I've heard many stories where people just pray out of nowhere because they just feel compelled by the Spirit. I'm just going to pray for that person. And right at that precise time, that person needed prayer. And you find out. 
You find out later. Maybe you feel compelled by the Spirit to share the scripture that you read that morning with someone. You don't know why. You just kind of just throw it out there. And you find out that it ministers to a lot of people. I've had that happen a lot in my life. It might be out of character for you to do something about it, to be led by the Spirit. But as Saul did, you have to do also. You need to sacrifice your self-image, be changed into another man. And sometimes, as you see in verse 8, it says in verse 8, Surely I'll come to you to offer the burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall, what? You shall wait. Wait seven days. Spirit compels you to do something. What do you do? Wait seven days. Sometimes it means to wait, to sit around, wait for God to tell you what to do next. Not jump ahead of God, but wait upon his spirit. Verse 9, it says, when it was... So it was when he had turned back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. He was given another heart. Some of you, let yourself be defined by how other people label you. That person's the angry one. That person is the pushover. Or you're overdramatic. And you hear that constantly over and over. You're labeled by that thing. And you just figure because you hear it so often that I must always be this way. I will always act this way. But God has a new role for you to play. Realize that tonight. You may think I may always be this way, but God has a new role for you to play. It's not that you're giving up yourself and you're going to be a completely different person. Like you lost yourself and you're suddenly a new person that's completely different from the other person. But as David Goodsick says, who com- he's a commentator, he says, not by losing yourself, but being uh, rather equipped with power to play a new role. When the Holy Spirit enters you, you're a person, you're the same person. You're not changing a completely unrecognizable person like a robot. But all the things in your life, the weaknesses that you saw, all of a sudden become strengths because God works inside of you and changes you. But that only happens when you ask Jesus to come inside of you and give you a new heart. And when you ask him to give you a new heart, you get to sacrifice your self-image and become who God wants you to be. And God wants you to be something bigger, to step into something bigger, to be someone greater than you are right now. Did you know that a low view of yourself can harm you? Some of you guys think that you're humble by thinking really lowly of yourself, by being like, I'm so like, not adequate, I'm so weak, I'm, I'm so not spiritual, or I really want to read my Bible more, but I'm just not. And you think by having this view of yourself being so negative that you're being humble. But that's not the definition of humility. Maybe some people say, I'm not really good for anything. I'm, I'm kind of useless. And if you're not fishing for compliments, you'll always be looking to improve your reputation in other people's eyes. You always be looking, well, if they're not telling me, if they're not complimenting me, I'm going to fish for those compliments. I'm going to go out there and try to restore my reputation, make everyone accept me and realize that I am not as they say I am. This was Saul's great problem. Later on, we find out in chapter 15, verse 17, that Saul was doing this terrible thing where she was going ahead of the Lord offering sacrifices of himself. He figures, I'm not going to wait for Samuel. I'm just going to take care of it myself. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. 
he was despising his position. He was despising his responsibility. I don't, want any, I don't even want this responsibility in the first place. I didn't ask for it. And because of that, he thought so little of himself that he didn't allow God to use him. Later in verse 24, Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's commands. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. You don't need a low view of yourself. You need a right view of yourself. You don't need a low view of yourself, a right view. We find that out in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with what? Lowliness? No. With sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we're not to look at ourselves lowly, but to look at ourselves rightly. If you're looking at yourself as useless, you got to sacrifice your self-image and become who God wants you to be. Some of you are saying that I'm worthless and you need to sacrifice your self-image and become who God wants you to be. Look at verse 12. Then a man from there answered and said, who is their father? But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high places. Here Saul goes and meets up with these prophets. He obeys the prophecy of Samuel. I'm, I'm going to see these people. All of a sudden these musicians start playing music around him. And I guess music has a powerful influence because once the music starts going, all of a sudden Saul starts prophesying. He wasn't a prophet. And everyone around him is like, is Saul one of the prophets? Since when did this happen? Isn't he the son of Kish? How did this happen? You see, when the Holy Spirit enters your heart, all of a sudden, all these qualities that you never saw in yourself pop up. All of a sudden, all these giftings you never thought were possible arise in you. I never saw myself as a preacher, but I found myself preaching even without the calling. Until it was pointed out to me, I never thought of it this way, but... I was the one in, in high school youth group praying three times in a small group. When everyone's in a prayer circle, I would be the one that was praying the loudest, praying the most frequent, and they had to put limits on prayers. Why don't we just pray once? Why don't we just like let other people have a chance? I was that kid. During retreats, I, have, I haven't seen this happen except once during an ignite retreat where someone goes back up to add things that they forgot to say. I did this three times on a retreat. I would go up and I'd be like, oh, I was really nervous. I didn't want to come up here, but let me share this. I, I leave and I come back. Oh, I learned one more thing. I leave and I come back. And th three times I would do this on retreats. And people would get mad at me. I just felt like I had something to share. Eventually I would put that in my lyrics when I wrote songs with my bands. And uh, sometimes I'd share insights with my friends. And I'd always be preaching at them. And often that got me into trouble more than it was good. But there were often times I just shared something that the Lord showed me in my devotion, I just had to tell someone about it. All of a sudden, this calling that was put upon me arose because I decided to step into something bigger, sacrifice my self-image, and lastly, we need to start well but finish better. This is the third lesson you can learn today from the life of Saul. Start well but finish better. Maybe you didn't know this, but Saul's name means desired or prayed for. He was the one they'd all been waiting for. 
Saul, King Saul, handsome, tall, capable. It says actually in chapter 9 that Saul was more handsome than anyone else in Israel and taller than anyone else. So when you see him, it's like, yeah, that, one, that, that one's a leader. He just looks the part. And right after he becomes king, he has this amazing, bold first battle against the Ammonites. He just kind of like gets his fervor and the fear of the Lord comes upon all the people of Israel. And he just goes into the battle and just knocks people out. Everyone can have a great start, but how will you finish? How are you going to finish? A lot of you, hold on, let me, I'm going to take a survey. Ready? How many of you have been coming to this church since you were in Ignite? Raise your hand. All right, since sixth grade. Raise your hand. Keep it up. That's a lot of you. Now you can put your hands down. That's a lot of you. But there are a lot more of you, weren't there? So you can start well, but how will you finish? If you have a, a, a plane going up in the air, and you're like, wow, that was a great takeoff. Oh, wow, there's no turbulence. This is great. But your plane crashes. Is it a good flight? No. It's a very bad flight. It was unsuccessful. In the same way, you might have a great takeoff in life spiritually. And like, wow, that person's so anointed. He's so filled with the Spirit. He just, it just seems like God's hand is upon him. It looked like that for Saul, but what happened to him? He came crashing down as well. Saul's story does not have a happy ending. We see the symptoms of his downfall in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, uh, where'd you go? So he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, oh, well, tell me, please, what did Samuel say to you? That famous prophet, that's awesome. What did he say? So Saul says to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's, that's pretty much it. That's all I got. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. You think you left out something there? Yeah. How many of us leave out the kingdom in our conversations with friends? So what happened this weekend? Oh, yeah, I just went out with some friends on, like, a trip to Pennsylvania. Oh, what'd you do there? Oh, we hung out. We played some games. That's it? Yeah, it was fun. Oh, and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Oh, that's weird. How many of us are leaving out the matters of the kingdom? Why do we do that? That's because Saul let his life be ruled by what others thought of him. He let his whole life be dictated by the opinions of others. Maybe you can't see that because he just seems like an angry guy. You know, later on with David, he's like throwing spears at him. He's like, oh, I'm so angry. And he's just like, he's mad. But he was very afraid of what others thought of him. Think about this. Who was the one who fought Goliath? It was David. Why wasn't Saul fighting? Hmm, maybe he was afraid of losing. A lot of us are afraid of fighting these battles, afraid to step into something bigger because you're afraid of failure. But you need to sacrifice your self-image, take a step into something bigger, and not just start well, but finish better. Later on in the chapter, as he's anointed king of Israel, everyone says, long live the king. But in verse 27, look what happens. Some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. I can imagine those words pierce his heart. The man hidden in the equipment, right? The one so afraid of everyone else. And then someone just whispers among them, how can this man save us? 
Maybe you feel like that's everyone else's prophecy over your life. How is that person going to be used of God? How is that person going to be worth anything? And you look at Saul's failures in his life. He offered an offering to God without waiting for Samuel. He was afraid of what people thought. I need to take care of this because we can't go into battle without talking to God. I know this isn't right, but I got to do this because people are telling me, telling me to do it. He made a foolish curse on Jonathan. He said, no one is allowed to eat until we have victory over our enemies. And Jonathan's like, man, I'm so hungry. I'm going to eat some honey. Just take some honey. And, and Saul's like, oh, well, we have to kill you. And he's just like ready to kill him because he's afraid of what people are going to think. He's willing to even kill his own son. And Jonathan's like, calm down. And everyone was like, Saul, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to kill your son. It was just some honey. And Jonathan was like going around taunting people. He's like, wait, what happened? He's like, yeah, your dad said that you can't eat anything until we have victory. It's just like, but look how refreshed I am after this little honey has been on my lips. Look at it. I was like, please stop. So he made this foolish curse on Jonathan. Saul spared the Amalekite king and kept the best of the plunder. He disobeyed God. Why? Because he wanted to listen to people. Malachite king was spared. He says, well, look what we can do. We can offer the sacrifice to God and keep the pe- peoples happy because we're bringing them stuffs, and this is great. He was afraid of what people thought. Jealousy of David. David has his, uh, Saul has his thousands, and David has his what? His ten thousands. Those words pierced his heart as well. Saul was a man who looked like he had it all together, but inside was falling apart. Amazing potential wasted. How many of you are in that same position? You have amazing potential, but you're really inside, you're falling apart. Charles Templeton was a man, contemporary of Billy Graham. Maybe you didn't know this. Anyone here of Charles Templeton before? Raise your hand. Anybody? All right, I'm about to tell you. Everyone knows Billy Graham, right? Raise your hand if you know Billy Graham. All right. Charles Templeton actually started out around the same time as Billy Graham, was more successful than Billy Graham in the beginning. People said that he was listed as uh, the best use of God by the National Association of Evangelicals in 1946. Templeton, along with Billy Graham, he would do these conferences with Billy Graham and a few other people, regularly spoke to thousands of people, winning many to Christ both in America and in Europe. Newspapers and magazines carried reportings of his meetings, informing readers he was winning 150 converts a night. Charles Templeton would have been the most famous evangelist in human history, more famous than Billy Graham. But what stopped him? He lost his faith. He actually stopped becoming a Christian. You can start well, but how will you finish? And he died at agnostic. He's dead now. He died rejecting his faith in Jesus. What will people say to you at the end of your life? What will you say at the end of your life? Will you be like Paul who said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. You you brazen the finish line. You went through and you said, I've done it. I've done everything I can for the sake of Christ Jesus. We need people like that today. You need to step into something bigger. You need to sacrifice your self-image and not only start well, but you got to finish better. I really hope that that 
that spoke to you tonight because that, as I was even studying this, like I said before, Dave Berkey couldn't teach tonight because he had to do a wedding. So I was just kind of asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to speak? And I just kind of chose a chapter. I was like, well, we'll find out what it's about. And people were asking me, what are you teaching on this Friday? I don't know what I'm teaching about this Friday. I just kind of like went with it because I wasn't ready to teach next week's message. I've been preparing next week's message for about a month now. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be about a commitment, our last teaching in the book of James. And we started James in January, January 25th. It's really funny. But the more I read this message, the more I realize that I am like Saul. I am like Saul. How many of you can relate with that? We start well. We, we step into something bigger and say, I guess I'm going to try it. But we get discouraged along the way. Things aren't working out our way and we're just kind of like, God, are you still here? Have you left me? Has your Holy Spirit left me? Because you realize that sometimes our self-concern has to be laid on the altar and say, Lord, it's not about me. It's not about my feelings. It's about your word and what you want to do through me as a vessel to do your work. And God wants to do something great in your life. But are you ready for it? Do you want to be used of God? It's officially been one year since I took over Impact. June 22nd. Stop clapping. Stop. I, I was not asking for pity. It's been uh, since June 22nd of last year. That was the first message that I taught here. And a lot has transpired. And you guys have uh, braved it out. And you guys are merciful with a lot of my inadequacies. I often feel a lot like so. I often look at myself and I'm just like, man, I am not supposed to be here right now. I am the guy that wants to run away. I am the one that wants to hide in the equipment. Why am I here? Because God's calling me to. Why am I going to continue to be here? Because as I step into something bigger, I sacrifice my self-image, I know I'm going to finish well. I don't know what God's calling me to do right now, but I know he has me here for a purpose. What about you? Maybe you don't know what God has for you in the future, but maybe you know that God has called you here now to be here, to be listening to his word, to be growing, to go into summer prepared for whatever it is that he has for you. Are you going to drag people along with you? Are you going to let them leave? Are you going to let them stand in the dust? It's all up to you guys. This isn't my youth group. This is your youth group. This is your team. You guys want to do cool, fun stuff, crazy stuff? It's up to you. It's not up to me. Ultimately, it's up to God. But you know what God's going to do? The same things we talked about tonight. You're going to be about doing your devotions in the morning, reading, flipping to random verses, and be like, all right, Matthew, I don't really get it. And then all of a sudden, a knock on your heart. Hey, I want to come in. I want to do something amazing in your life. Are you going to answer? Are you going to be stepping into something bigger? Or are you going to say, well, not now, Jesus. I'm just not ready. I'm kind of like, I'm doing my devotions right now anyway. I'm kind of busy. God wants to do something amazing in your life. It requires sacrifice. But oh, my word, the rewards are far better than any of the struggles that you can imagine.